morning. So if you want to look in your Bibles to Luke, the 19th chapter, that's where we're going to be. Going to be an exciting time. This was an exciting time for, for the disciples, an exciting time for Jesus, and an exciting time for the people. Luke chapter 19. Give you a few minutes here to find it. Now my Bible may be reading a little differently because I'm using a, probably a different version. When I read, in case um, you don't, people don't follow along, then they kind of get it a little, little closer to our language. But generally, it doesn't distract from the message. So in Luke, the 19th chapter, starting with the 29th verse. As he came near Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead with these instructions. Go to the village there ahead of you. As you go in, you will find a colt tied up that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, when you come into the Mount of Olives, I've been there, I've seen it, so I know exactly what area they're talking about. And that's the advantage to going over to Israel and be able to see some of these places and get excited all over again. And to be able to see that, and as you come into Jerusalem, it's up on a hill. I mean, not like we would call a mountain or anything, but to them it's, it's, it's up high and it's elevated, but so is the Mount of Olives. So when you're up at the Mount of Olives, you have to go down into a valley and then up into the, to the gate of the city. Anyway, the eastern gate, and this is the gate that Jesus would have been uh, going in. And if you look, as the crow flies, it's probably a mile across there. But it's probably a mile, mile and a half, maybe a mile and three quarters by the time you go down and come up. So that's where he was at. He was over there by coming from Bethany. Now, Bethany, that's where Jesus spent a lot of his time with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So we're a little bit familiar with kind of Bethany. That's one of the, the prominent places that Jesus spent time. And before this happened, before he rode into Jerusalem, he spent time with some of the, the closest people that he knew in Bethany. With Lazarus, of course, we know that Lazarus was just raised from the dead not too, too long before this event. So that's where we're at this morning. He's sending his disciples out to get a colt that had never been ridden. Now why in the world would that happen? Why would he want that? Because I know that you have horses, you know that you do not want even attempt to get on a horse that hasn't been broken. Isn't that right, Susie? Oh, no, 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 no. They do not like to cooperate at all. And it's not something you want to do. Matter of fact, it's not something you want to do probably after the second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth or twentieth time. Because they, it's a breaking process that has to happen. But he wanted a colt that was not ridden. And I found out one day, when I was about 21 years old, when I was young and stupid, <laughs> we was over to an uncle's house, and he was a rancher, and he had horses, and they had a horse in this corral, and this corral was taller than I am, and they had this horse that they were breaking. They'd been in the process of it. And I thought, wow, it'd be kind of cool to ride a horse that wasn't quite broke. I've never done that before. So I thought, wow, this would be cool. And they said, you really want to do this? Oh, why not? At that age, when you're young and stupid, you're invincible, right? Doesn't matter what you want to do. Hey, I can do this. I'm young. I'm in good health. I can do this. So I get old to get on this horse. And, of course, the horse, you, have, you don't just get on him. You have to get up in the stirrup, and you get up. And I got up there. And just as I went to flip my leg across that saddle, 
that horse jumped and took off. So here I am in the stirrup, and I got my leg up halfway behind the saddle, and that horse is bucking all the way around that corral, and I'm just hanging on for dear life, knowing I'm going to fall off at any moment. But I didn't. And then finally I thought, oh, here's a chance. Oh, he's starting to slow down. So just as he started slowing down a little bit, I didn't realize why he had slowed down, though. And just as he slowed down, I went and thought, oh, here's my chance. And I went whoop, up under the saddle. And just as I did, that horse went straight up in the air and over that five-pole corral fence. And of course, because of my momentum, I went over the horse's head, over the five-pole corral fence, and down on the ground. Luckily, I was pretty, pretty good at athletics back then, so I tumbled a little bit, rolled up. And just as I looked, rolled up, I seen the horse coming over behind me. So I got out of the way pretty fast. So it was kind of a, a, a very interesting experience. I didn't get hurt too bad. I walked away from it. But I thought, man, Sonder, you're dumb. I don't think I'll do that again. I didn't even have cowboy boots on or nothing. So it, well, I wasn't prepared for what happened. But the interesting thing about this video is they videoed it. They actually videoed this event. And here I am at the beginning of this video. Here I am getting married. At the end, next thing you see is me going over this five-pole corral fence. So it's really, really exciting time of my life. I'm glad I don't have access to that movie. I don't think I want to watch it again. I, may, I, I probably got some aches and pains today because of that journey I had over the fence. So we know that getting on a horse or a colt or something that hasn't been broken is not a smart thing to do. But Jesus wanted something specifically that no man had been on. Now this is something that, that we don't really look at as far as Jesus getting this colt that had never been ridden. Because this is one of those unrecorded miracles that we don't think about. For someone to get on an animal and ride it without the thing coming unglued is a miracle. It doesn't happen. I, don't, I can't think of it. Have you ever heard of anything like that happen? Huh? I don't think anyone else has. But see, Jesus was showing that he has the power over everything. Over the animal kingdom plus this kingdom that we live in. Are this kingdom in my heart, and he is in charge of everything that goes on in this world. So he wanted one that had never been ridden. And man, so he sends his disciples to go get it. And then we have verse uh, what, 31, 31. If someone asks you why you're untying it, tell him that the master needs it. They went on their way and found everything just as Jesus had told him. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying it? And the, the master needs it, they answered, and they took the colt to Jesus. Now, why in the world did Jesus want a colt or a donkey? Why would he want one? What was so important about getting a colt? I mean, to my knowledge, this is the first time that Jesus ever rode anywhere. This is the only instance that Jesus wanted to ride somewhere. Now, it wasn't because all of a sudden he got tired. He walked from Bethany to, to the Mount of Olives, and he was getting tired. And he said, man, I'm just too tired to go down that, down that deep hill and up the other side. I'm too tired. He didn't do it because of that. He might have been tired. He probably was. All the ministry and things that he did is draining. You start helping people for a living, I'll tell you, it wears you out fast, doesn't it? So he, he, yeah, he could have used that excuse, but that isn't why he did it. He had a specific reason for it. One of those reasons is found in 1 Kings, the first chapter, 32 to 35. And it said, Then King David sent for Zadok and Nahum and Benaiah. When they came in, he said to them, Take my court officials with you 
have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and escort him down to the Gishon Spring, where Zadok and Nahan are to anoint him as king of Israel. Then blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. Follow him back here when he comes to sit on my throne. He will succeed me as king because he is the one I have chosen to be the ruler of Israel and Judah. Now the newly appointed king, this was such a tradition. Now back then, it wasn't always necessarily the firstborn son that got to be king. And Adoniah, his other son, who was the next in line, according to man's tradition, was the one that was supposed to be king. And Adoniah was over in the other area of the kingdom. He was having a little anointing party of his own. He was anointing himself as king. But he didn't invite any of the king's officials. He didn't invite the prophets that were supposed to be the ones to anoint the king. He didn't do that. He kind of did it on the slide and figured, well, I'm next in line. There's going to be no competition because I'm the oldest. But David had promised Bathsheba that Solomon was going to be the one that was going to follow him as king. Now, I think that's the least he could do after what he did to Bathsheba, don't you? Killing her husband, basically raping her because that's what it was. He, she, because he was the king, he used his authority over her. So that's the least that he could do is be able to honor him like that. And so when, when Nahum, the prophet, found out that Adonai was over there going to take over the kingdom, he went into Bathsheba and he said, Hey, Bathsheba, this stuff's going on over here. You better do something about it. Otherwise, your son isn't going to be king. Because he knew. They knew that Solomon was supposed to be the king. So David did what they were supposed to do in that time, and that is the, the changing of the guard. And they put Solomon on his own donkey, on his own mule. Now, the mules weren't... So just a, a blunt of a joke back then. They were considered normal, norm, noble, I'll get the word out in a minute, noble beasts. So they weren't the blunt of all the jokes that we use back then. So this was a noble thing to ride on a, on a donkey if you were going to be king. And the kings rode on them. And so that was the changing of the guard. And he puts Solomon on it, and he goes in and he anoints, anoints him as king. So that's one of the reasons that, that David wanted a, a donkey. Only one no one had set on before because he was superseding everyone. There was a new king in town, right? A new king. One that had never reigned before as far as in this worldly realm. And he was announcing himself as the king of kings because that's what he was. And he had to have a donkey, a colt that had never been ridden on because he wasn't taking over the authority of someone else's kingdom. He was starting his own. So that's why one of the reasons he wanted that donkey the next reason is found in Zechariah, the ninth chapter in the ninth verse. And it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a colt, the foal of an ass. That was the scripture that says, if you want to know who your Messiah is, I'm going to tell you how to look for him, how to find him. He's going to be the one that rides through the eastern gate on a donkey. He's going to be the one that I've chosen to be the Messiah. He's the one that's going to be the king to end all kingdoms. He's the one. So Jesus had to fulfill the scripture. And so he needed a donkey. He needed all these things to be done. Decently in order, because that's the way God is. And so he went out there, and the other, there's a Psalm 118. If you want to look at that, it's the, what they call the Masonic, the, the Psalm of the Messiah. And it says in verse 26, Blessed be he that come in the name of the Lord. And that's what the sh crowds were shouting. Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
because they knew this scripture. They knew these verses, and they knew that the Messiah was one day going to come and how he was going to come. Now, another thing that we may overlook is when, the, when they went and sent the two disciples to get the colt to begin with. He told them, go, word is going to be found, and if anybody asks you about it, just tell them the master needs it. Now, some people think that Jesus prearranged this with the guy. And I don't think that's possible because why, if that had happened, why in the world would the owner question what they were doing? He wouldn't have to if they knew that Jesus was going to come and pick up this donkey at this certain time. He wouldn't need to. It's, oh, okay, because they knew who the disciples were just as much as they knew Jesus was. But this guy that owned this cult, I believe, was a believer. He was a follower of Jesus. And they come in, and all they had to say to him was, the master needs it. And that was enough. Now, if you come to my house, and you walk in my door, and you grab the keys to my truck or to our car and walk out the door with it, they're going to go start that, go get in the vehicle, and I say, hey, what do you think you're doing? And they say, well, the master needs it. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> master who? <laughs> but that's kind of the same thing that went on here. Because that guy was a believer. And anything that the master wanted, he could have. It was his. Because he had already committed everything that he owned, everything he had to the Lord. Have we done that? Is Jesus wanting something in our life? Is that enough for us to give it? If Jesus says, hey, I want that, whatever it might be, sometimes we get this you know, little shiny little trinket that we have, and we're so proud of it, and we like it, and, oh, it's so pretty, I got a brand new watch. Oh, man, I don't, though, but I don't, but just say I do. Pretend it's brand new, pretend it's shiny, and it's so pretty, and I get to look at it and see what time it is, and I'm admiring it, and Jesus says, give that to somebody. What? What are you talking about? This is my watch. I worked hard for this watch. I paid my tithes. I paid, I even gave missions money. I even gave to the Dinkin Fund. I even gave la, 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 la. This is my watch, God. This is my watch, Jesus. I want to keep it. It's shiny and pretty. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. That's why I want you to give it. <laughs> but just because Jesus says that, are we willing to take it off our arm and give it to somebody? If we're true followers of Jesus, everything that we own, everything that we have belongs to him. It's not ours. We're just stewards of it. And whatever we give to God, it belongs to him anyway. See, I'm a real good giver. You give me your checkbook and you can find out how good a giver I can be. Man, I'll write checks to everything. I'll write checks to every missionary I can think of. I'll write checks to every fund you can think of. Why? Because, hey, it's your money. It's not mine. I'm really gracious and very generous with someone else's money. That's what we have in Washington. We have a, have a government full of people who are generous with other people's money. That's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> but we as Christians, everything that we have, everything that we, quote, own, belongs to God. Because he gave it to us. And when we give back the tithe or the 10% of what he's given us, that belongs to him already. It isn't ours. He didn't give it to us for our own personal use. He, that 10% belongs to him saying, thank you, God, this belongs to yours. I'm giving it back to you. And then out of that other rest of that money, say, oh, not only am I going to give you my tithe, I'm going to support missions. I'm going to support other things because I know that everything belongs to you. And we can't evangelize this world. We can't reach this world for you if we do not give of what we have. That's the program God set up. I know that he can, he can create money, and I've seen God do that. But he wants it to be important to us. He wants to know that we have a heart of giving. Because if we don't have a heart to give, we'll never have a heart to win people to the Lord. 
And we need to understand that. If you want to see your loved ones saved, what are you doing about your giving? Are you hanging on to everything? Are you just close fist about everything God wants us to do? Well, it's hard to reach somebody because the world can see those things in our lives. Believe it or not, they can. The world knows if we're stingy. The world knows if we're giving people. They know that. We don't have to tell them. So, but when God has our hearts, we realize that everything belongs to God. And if Jesus wants something, then that's the only reason we need to, for us to give it. We don't need to look around for excuses because that should be sufficient. Because it was sufficient for this guy. And I don't know how, whether this guy was wealthy or not. It doesn't say. It doesn't even give the guy's name. Otherwise, there'd be a church to this guy over there somewhere. Now, this is the owner of the donkey that Jesus rode into the church, uh, into Jerusalem on. And we'd have, because if you've ever been to Israel, man, they got, they got signs and memorials for everything you can think of. This is where Jesus fell down the first time. I'm at Kenya. I think they invented places he fell down. There's so many places on that road, I wonder, man, I, I don't read that in my Bible. I think that God would have included some of those things. But it sounds more grandiose if we have all these memorial things because then they can sell more things to the tourist. You know, instead of, there's 14 stations of the cross. He fell down here. He said this to this person here and all these things. And they may all be true. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But if they would have had a guy's name, we'd have a church over there. The church to Ahab, the, the, the donkey loner. <laughs> and we'd have a picture of the donkey too. <laughs> and you'd have little, little statues. This is a replica of the exact donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on. And for $9.95, you could take one home. <laughs> or if you can't afford $9.95, we have these cards. Three for a dollar. <laughs> Isn't that true? I'll tell you, we make a thing out of everything in our, in our society. Luke, the, 30, the 35th chapter, excuse me, the 35th verse, the second part of 35 anyway. Then they threw their cloaks over the animals and helped Jesus get on. As he rode on, people spread their cloaks on the road. The cloaks, now that was their outer garment. That was their, their um, they had the regular clothes that they wore, and then they had this outer garment. Now this outer garment was very important to them because this outer garment was the same thing that they used to, to cover themselves up when they slept. And this outer garment was so important to people that they could borrow money on this garment. But if you loan money to somebody for this cloak, then at nighttime you had to give it back to them so they could sleep in it because they had no way to cover themselves up if they didn't have it. So some of these people that were throwing these cloaks on the donkey or throwing the cloaks on the, on the, on the road in front of Jesus, that was all that they had, some of them. That's the only possession that they had. It was the only thing that they had enough value you could borrow money on. They gave it all to Jesus because they were so excited about what was going on in their life. And they could see the prophecy was being fulfilled. And they were just so excited. Well, look at us today. We have more things that's being fulfilled since then than they did. And look how excited they got. Man, they was going crazy. And they were throwing their valuables. They were throwing everything that they had. Well, he was giving it to the authority of Jesus at that time. Verse, uh, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to lay everything that we have at the feet of Jesus? Are we? I ask God that I can be willing to do that because I want to do that. I don't want anything in my life that I am not willing to give up because whatever that is that we're hanging so close to, that's what's going to start bringing us down because that will become more important to us than, than God. 
in church. I mean, I'm, you buy a new car, and I'm not against new cars, and you buy that new car, and you're so proud of it, and you keep it so clean and shiny, and, you know, you put it in the garage, and there's some people I've seen, they got these little dust things that they have, and they go anywhere, and they're always dusting it off, got a little dust on it. Take good care of that car. Well, I think that's an idol to that, don't you? <laughs> if we took as good a care of our own lives and our own bodies and our own hearts as we do at some of the other things we have, we'd be in a lot better position with God, wouldn't we? So if you got a new car, it's okay. It's okay to show it off. It's okay to do those kind of things. But we got to make sure that the things that we have in this world do not separate us from God. That none of those things are more important than God. If they are, if you have something that keeps you from coming to church, if you have something that keeps you from praying, if you have something that's keeping you from reading God's Word, then guess what? It's an idol. And God is the only God that we need to have in our life. So whatever that might be, we need to throw it out. We need to get rid of it. If, driving a, if I can't drive a new car without worshiping that thing, I'll drive old clunkers. Amen? I don't want God to give me a new car if I can't handle a new car. And I believe that God would love to give everybody brand new Beamers or Cadillacs or Mercedes, whatever our little hearts desired. I believe that God would love to do that for us. But unfortunately, he knows that to some of us, we wouldn't be able to handle it. And all of a sudden, our focus would come off God, and we start thinking, look what I gave myself. Look what I did. And so if you want to know why you don't have a Cadillac, Maybe God knows you can't trust you with one. Because I have all the money God can trust me with. God has, you have all the money God can trust you with. When God can trust you with more money, you'll have it. Because you're, however you're faithful with what he's given you determines what more you're going to get. So, that's extra. That wasn't, you know, you got that for free. <laughs> Verse 37. When he came near Jerusalem, at the place where the road went down the Mount of Olives, the large cloud crowd of his disciples began to thank God and praise him in loud voices for all the great things they had seen. God bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God. Like I said earlier, this was after Lazarus had been raised from the dead, and this was something that everyone knew about. I mean, that, that kind of news traveled fast. And they were so excited because they knew this was the Jesus that raised Lazarus from the dead. And he's riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. This is our king. This is our Messiah. And man, they just got all excited about it. Now, we sometimes wonder why. Why did he even bother to do this to fulfill scripture? Was the number one reason. But we have to understand the, the, the triumphal entries of generals during that period of time. Now, when a Roman general went out and they got victories over their enemies, they would have a triumphal entry into the, back into the city. That was, or a parade. Actually, we know it more as a parade. We understand the word pray, parade instead of triumph. It'd be just like when our Super Bowl winners go to Washington, D.C. or New York or wherever they go and they have a ticker tape parade for them and everybody's excited. Oh, there's the Super Bowl champions. Oh, how exciting it is. And we go crazy over these people. Well, if you understand that, then you understand the people. Because Jesus to them was better than any Super Bowl MVP, better than any other MVP from anything that we can imagine. And this was a parade procession. Well, the generals, when they were allowed to have this parade, they had to have killed 5,000 people, minimum, in battle. If you killed less than that, you didn't get a parade. You got to thank you. Thanks. Good job. But that's it. 
But if you killed at least 5,000 people in your conquest of cities, you got a parade. You got to come into the city victorious. And they would line up at the gate of the city. And they would all line up there. And the trumpeters would lead the way. And they'd blow the trumpets and everybody get everybody's attention, announcing, oh, this victorious general's coming. Oh, boy, everybody get excited. And then after them would come the, they'd come the trumpeters. And then they'd have the, the people that would... Uh, the floats. You want to know where we got floats from? Why we have floats? They started in Bible times. And these floats that have floats or towers that represented every city that this general had destroyed. So if they had ten of these floats there, that means he destroyed ten cities. And they would just march on up the parade. And following the, the parade, then you would have the... Um, the carts with all the treasures that they got, the gold, wagons full of gold and silver and art and all kinds of precious things, and that would follow right behind them. And then after them would come the, uh, the lector guy, and the, they call him a lector, and what he did was he was the one that proclaimed all these things. Oh, hail general, such and such. He's killed this amount of many people, and he did all these kind of things. And oh, what a wonderful guy he is. And told all these kind of things about that. Then came the flutes and the tambourines and they blow and the incense, people with incense and all kinds of things like that. And after all this pomp and stuff went ahead of them, then here comes Santa Claus, right? Isn't that what happens in Macy's? <laughs> here comes Santa Claus and everybody's waiting to see Santa Claus. <laughs> no. And then here comes the general. He's in a gold decorated chariot and he's all decked out with a gold crown and an ivory scepter and he's up there in all his pomp and grandeur and he's got bay leaves of, of, of the sign of a victory thing underneath his crown. So they'd be able to, and he's there and sometimes his kids would be in the, in the chariot with him and his relatives would be riding in another chariot the other side of him and his, and his army and everything, and his aides and his secretaries, all his staff would be behind him. And then after that, here comes the soldiers. Here comes the one that done all the work. And the way it is, they get the tail end of the parade. <laughs> well, here they come, and they've all got crowns on their heads because they were victorious in battle. And this was the only time that the soldiers were allowed to say, to, to ridicule the leadership. This was the only time they were allowed is when they came in during this procession. They could say whatever they wanted about that general and about his regime or anything they wanted without fear of being punished. Any other time, it costs you your head. So that's kind of the, the, the thing or the scenario of what a triumphal entry was all about. Now, Alexander, another custom that they had was when they came in, they'd throw things in front of their path. When Alexander went into Babylon, they'd throw flowers in his path. And he walked victorious into the city of Babylon on flowers. Artaxerxes, he went through through myrtle. He trampled on myrtle. He threw myrtle on his pathway. And I don't know if, if you're old enough. I don't know. You probably have. You've seen in World War II when some of our generals went in and, and uh, released cities or freed cities from the enemy that they were throwing flowers in their pathway. That was the tradition. So that's what we got to realize when we see what's going on here. And Jesus is coming in, and they're going crazy. They didn't have no flowers. All they had was these palm branches, these man-made banners that God had made and supplied for them. And they had all that they had, the clothes on their back. And they were just freely throwing them there because they was going crazy. Because they knew that this was their king. This was the one that they believed was going to free them from the bondage of the Roman Empire. That's all they saw. They didn't see 
the real purpose of why Jesus was there. They didn't. They seen a king that they wanted. And the king that they wanted was going to be the one that was going to just reunite the whole state of Israel and Judah. And they were going to throw out these dirty buggers. <laughs> these enemy that them that had them in bondage. That's all they seen. But they didn't realize that he came riding in the, into Jerusalem on a donkey. And a donkey was a symbol of peace. So he was the king of peace. The prince of peace was coming thither. If he came in for war, he would have rode a horse. And we know that when he comes back to this earth again, he's going to be on a horse. He's not going to be on a donkey. He's not going to bring that kind of peace. He's going to come in for war, and he's going to force peace. And he's going to clean up the place. But here, he came, a prince of peace. And the people didn't understand it. They wanted someone to be a political leader. They wanted someone that could give peace. And today in Israel, and they said that they would follow the devil himself if he would give peace. And that's the world we live in today. They will follow anyone they can if they promise peace. And one day they're going to find somebody that's going to do that. Now, I don't know who that is. There's a lot of conjecture about who the Antichrist is going to come. I don't know who it is. And maybe we won't ever know who it is. I have, we can guess all we want. But it doesn't matter. And we can see how fast that an antichrist or someone, a ruler, could come in and just overwhelm the world because we're seeing that right now, aren't we? Man, the United States has gone crazy over Obama, and so is the rest of the world. And they're looking to him to create a one-world order. I was telling him in Sunday school, I hate, I know that a one-world order has to happen. And I can't pray against a one-world order because it's in the Bible. But I can pray, God, help us, Lord, to be able to be strong and protect your church until you come. I can pray that. But we're not going to stop the one-world order. I don't know when it is, but Lord, if you don't know it, it's coming. And if you're not ready, if your heart isn't ready to meet God, then you better get it ready because time's short. Prophecy is coming to pass right before our eyes. And these people that were shouting Hosanna and that, why did they do it? It didn't just say, well, at any time that happens, that's going to be the Messiah. Huh, there was another promise that they, had, that they were looking for. Now, we know that in uh, Daniel, the ninth chapter, I'm going to read this to you. And Daniel wrote about this, uh, 70 weeks are decreed as to your people and as your holy city to finish the transgressions and to make an end of sins, to make atonement for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks. <laughs> The streets shall be built again and the wall even in times of affliction. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So they knew. Now this prophecy, it's the start of the clock. And I guess we decided this morning it was uh, March 4th, 444 B.C. That's when this prophecy was given. I mean, it was given at the time they would rebuild the temple. So they knew as soon as that decree went out, the clock started. So they had to count 483 years from that point to when the Messiah would come. So there would be no doubt on who it was. And 483 years to the very day, that's when Jesus went into the city on the donkey. And the rest of this verse says, and after 62 weeks, 
Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Isn't that what happened? Isn't that what happened to Jesus? He was cut off. They killed him. But it wasn't for himself that he was killed. It was for us. So 444 B.C. till now? Wow, that was a long time ago. But God's word is fulfilled, and it is being fulfilled. And everything that God said in this word is going to happen. Every jot and tittle, everything that he said, nothing's going to change. So they were looking for a Messiah. They knew that the time was getting close because they knew the Bible. These people, they didn't have their own personal Bibles like we do today. But those people knew their Bible better than we do because they didn't have them. And something you don't have when you get an opportunity to possess, it becomes something valuable to you. Some of these people in these uh, countries in Asia and China, man, just to have a Bible, oh, what an exciting time for them. I remember when I, years ago, that before the, Russia was open to be able to get Bibles into there, they used to have people sneak Bibles into these mission fields. And what they'd do, they'd get one Bible, and 5,000 people maybe had to share that one Bible. And they'd tear a page out of it. Every page would have a page. And they'd pass those pages around to everybody so everybody could read the Bible. That's what they thought of God's word because it was precious to them. And yet here we come, and I, got, I probably got 20 Bibles at home. We're just so used to having it. So we don't have a tendency to, to value God's word as much as we should. But they did, and they knew he was coming. Luke, uh, now Jesus, before he went through, through all this, he told them what his mission was, didn't he? He kept telling them that I must be lifted up. I came to save the world. But they weren't hearing that. All they heard is what they wanted to hear. Isn't that what we do today? We take, we go, we love these promises in here. Oh, we love these. Oh, wow, let me find a promise. Oh, this is what God said. Well, what did it say before that? Well, I don't know. What did it say after that? I don't know. So you're just taking something out, and you're just going to claim it. <laughs> I think you need to read the whole thing. And that's what they did. They were just taking one part of it, and they were, they were just getting excited, all excited about it. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he had come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. Pharisees didn't like it. See, because the whole crowd was going after Jesus. Man, they were shouting, here's the Messiah. And the, and the Pharisees who made their living on the word of God and teaching people, they thought, man, I'm losing my congregation. Oh, man, what am I going to do? we got a new preacher in town here. What am I going to do? Half the congregation went to hear him because he's so, so charismatic. They were afraid of losing people. They knew the scripture better than anybody did. And we know a lot of people that are, that are scholars of the word in their head, but not in their heart. And there were so many Pharisees and Sadducees during this period of time that had a head knowledge of the scripture, but they didn't have the heart knowledge. And because they didn't have that heart knowledge, this episode which drove them right over the edge, they had had enough with this Jesus, and they were going to get rid of him. They could see nothing else. They didn't care about anything. They didn't even bother to check to see whether or not he was the Messiah or not. They didn't care. They were jealous of him and all the following that was going on. And we get a lot of that today. There are people that it's their job just to tear down the church, isn't it? 
They talk about everything else except for what's important. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. It's not if I tear things down that other people believe or if I tear down their customs or, or whatever that they do because it's different than mine. That isn't what the Bible says. Jesus said, I be lifted up. We have to lift Jesus up just like the disciples did on that day, lifting him up on that donkey. We, he was lifted up so the crowd could see him. And when we lift Jesus up in our heart, then the crowds can see them. Our family can see him. Our loved ones can see him. Well, we got to get away from all that stuff and just lift Jesus up. But we all know what happened after this. Jesus wept over the city when he's seen there. And I'm not kidding you. If the first time you come in and you see Jerusalem for the first time, because I know we pulled up there in our bus, and we were singing, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know. And I'm not kidding you. Your hearts just wanted to break forth in song. And I'm not kidding you. The emotion that just comes over you, you just can't contain. Because this is the city that I'd heard so much about. This is the city that the Bible talks about. This is the city that Jesus walked in. Wow, I'm not kidding you. All those emotions were just flowing through you. And then you got that song. And I'm not kidding you. There wasn't a dry eye in the bus. So I can understand it when Jesus seen there and he looked and he seen the city and realized this is the time I'm going through those gates. And I know what's going to happen next. And he cried and he said, oh, I wished you would have accepted me. Oh, I wished you would have just listened to my word. Oh, I just wish you would have come to me and so I could save you. But he knew they would refuse him. He knew it. And that's what broke his heart. And that's why he was crying over the city. Because he knew that they had their chance. And they didn't take it. We have a lot of people that's had a chance to, to reach out to Jesus and they don't take it. Maybe they'll get another chance. Maybe they won't. I don't know. We can pray for him. But Jesus cried and his heart was broken because he knew that. And so because of their rejection of their Messiah, when God sent him, he said, these things are hidden from you. So God hid them. So now only the people that seek God's face are going to be able to find the truth of the Jewish people. And when they find the truth, then they can accept their Messiah. But one day their Messiah is going to come and they are going to accept him. But we know what happened after this in John 19, verse 14, it says, And it was a preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. These were the religious leaders of the day. They were so mad at Jesus and everything that he did, they could care less about anything. We don't have any king but Caesar. God was supposed to be their king. But they didn't care. Whatever it took to get him crucified, to get him killed, they were willing to do. They would sell themselves out, sell their souls to hell to get rid of this guy because that way he threatened, threatened their religion, threatened their, uh, their pocketbook. It threatened everything that they stood for. This morning, we have two groups of people here this morning. We have those that are shouting, crucify him because he's interfered with my life. And we have those who say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have to decide which one of those people we are going to be. I'd like to think we're all that group that say, Hosanna, praise be to Jesus, our king, the ruler of the universe who's come to save us. See, his job was to come to save us. To create peace in our hearts between us and God. He is the Prince of Peace. 
because that's the peace that we needed. We needed peace with God. And if we don't have peace this way, it doesn't matter what happens this way. And we have to choose which one we're going to be this morning. Now, I think it's really nice that this morning is, is uh, Communion Sunday. And what a good time to remember what Jesus did for us. Because it was just a few short days that they celebrated, that Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples for the last time. It was the last time. And he told us to do it every time we take this in remembrance of him. If the ushers or the deacons of Al, Randy, if you'd come. And um, you don't have to be a member of this church in order to take communion. It's open. Just, I just ask that you hang on to them until everybody's been served. Go ahead. And if you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior this morning, I invite you to do that. And say, I want to be in that group that says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be him who died on the cross for my sin. Let this be the day. Let this be the first communion you take as a new believer and as a new Christian. But as you're taking it and as they're passing it out, the Bible says to let's examine our hearts. So let's examine our hearts this morning and see if there's anything in our life. Ask God, shine your light in my heart. And if there's anything in my life that I'm hanging on to, Lord, that's crowding you out, if there's anything in my life that's more important to me than you, let me know what it is and tell me how I can get rid of it. Sin's easy to get rid of. That's the easiest thing in the world for us to get rid of because, see, Jesus paid for it on a cross. We don't have to worry about that. All we have to do is accept the payment. He gives us a ticket to heaven. We just have to take the ticket and get on the train. The rest, everything else he's done. But it's up to us to make sure that our hearts stay clean and stay pure before him. That's our responsibility to be able to do that. Now, the Bible said that in the same night that Jesus was betrayed, and this was just the same week, a few days, they were yelling, Hail be the king. Blessed be the king. A few days later, they were yelling, Crucify him. But when he was up there with his disciples, and he, was, he knew all these things that he was going to have to suffer for each one of us, it didn't dissuade him, even though he knew it, because that's the reason he came he came to die on a cross for our sin. That was his only reason for coming. That was the only reason is because he loved us. He loved you and he loved me that much. And if you would have been the only person on this earth, he still would have come. Because we are valuable to God. I don't know why, but I do know how valuable my kids are to me. They're part of my, my body. And we're part of God because he created us. He created us in, in the womb of our mother. And he loves us. And he wants nothing more than for each one of us to accept, uh, accept him as their savior. Accept the, 
the, the price he paid. Why in the world do we want to try to make it on our own when Jesus paid the price? I can't pay a price. He paid the price I couldn't pay. You can't pay. All of us in here together, we couldn't pay the price. And he knew that, and yet he loved us, and he came, and he endured everything because he loves us. And at that night, he said, this is my body. This represents my body, which is broken for you. When you take this, take it. Remember that my body's broken. So if you need healing this morning, and we're going to pray for a, a little in just a few minutes for people, but if you need healing this morning, he took stripes upon his back for your healing. We don't have to deal with a lot of things that we deal with. Sometimes we do because God knows us. And he knows that if, if we're too healthy, that we'll turn our back on him. And I'd rather go through this life wounded and make it to heaven than in good health and not. But God took, Jesus took stripes on his back for our healing. So let's pray over this body of Christ. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for your body which was broken for each one of us. Lord, that you didn't have to do, Lord, but you loved us, so you allowed yourself to be beaten, Lord, with many, many stripes, Lord, and allowed your back to be ripped open, Lord, and blood gushed out from him, Lord, because you provided it for our healing, Lord. And, Lord, I just ask, Lord, your anointing, Lord, upon us this morning, and, Lord, I ask, Lord, that you'd help us, Lord, as believers, Lord, and part of your body, Lord, as we take this, Lord, to claim that healing, Lord, that you provided for us. In Jesus' precious holy name, amen. Let's take the bread together. And in the same manner, it says that Jesus took the cup. And he said, this represents my blood that's going to be shed for you for the remission of your sin. And we all know that the life is in the blood. And that's why blood had to be shed. And he didn't just shed a drop or two. It wasn't just a little bit of a blood that he dropped. He bled out everything that he had. Every drop of blood in his body was shed for us so that we can be saved. That's what the blood represents. And when we drink this, let's remember what he gave up, that he died he gave his very life, the essence of everything that he, he was. He died on the cross for us, for our sin. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for the blood that was shed upon the cross for my sin, Lord, and the sin for everyone that is in here this morning. The sin, Lord, that you, you shed your blood for, for the whole world. And we just thank you for that blood. We thank you, Lord, that you were willing to die. And we thank you for that, Lord, because of that we are saved, we're redeemed, Lord. And we belong to you and we're part of your body, Lord. And now we remember, Lord, that sacrifice. And we drink this in remembrance of your sacrifice. Let's all drink together. This week, I know Sunday, Easter Sunday is going to be so exciting. And we're going to be so happy. But let's not forget there was a journey to get to there. And remember what Christ did this week. Come Friday, set some time aside and just remember what he did for us on a cross. And just contemplate it. Maybe read some of the accounts in the Bible because the Bible doesn't give actually what he suffered justice. 
for actually all the atrocities and things that he suffered. So take time to do that this week, will you?